I have a very mixed and complicated relationship with news. Maybe some of you are in this kind of same space, right? Where like some of you, uh, some of you might feel like, okay, I need to watch the news. Or the, what makes it complicated is, I need to watch the news because I need to find out what's going on. And then when you watch the news, you're like, I wish I didn't know that, right? Anyone with me? Like, um, like I remember like last week or last year, last year there was like one week where like. Oh no, there's all these COVID variants. And then, oh no, there's also giant murder hornets. You remember that week? That was a weird week. Um, I, I really wish I didn't know that, but that was out there. Uh, last week was one of those weeks where like, and it's, it's these two articles that I read back to back, and it kind of messed me up. It, it did me a good number for uh, uh, a good while. And, um, and, and, and the first article that I read was the White House saying that, COVID is pretty much here to stay, so it was saying just deal with it. And the second one was uh, there's a monkeypox that's happening, um, and here's a news footage of that. Um, we have a picture of it real quick. And so monkeypox uh, outbreak is, is, is happening. Um, so I, <laughs> uh, I could laugh about this now, uh, but it's so good. So good. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I can laugh about this meme now, but when I first read it, I, I really, I literally felt my body tense up. I, I, um, I felt anxious. Um, I started to question my summer plans. I, I became thinking. I, I started to think about my wife and her workplace and what that means. Um, I started having memories of like what that meant, uh, or, or of like that March of 2020 and. And it just, and it really took me a long time, a good, like a good while, um, to slowly uh, bring that to God. And it's not, it wasn't instinctive. It's not instinctive for me just yet. Like it took me some time to get there. It took me some time to allow myself to like, oh my gosh, like my breathing, like I need to catch up on my breathing to realize that. It took me some time to realize, okay, I need to slow down my heart. I need to slow down my mind. And eventually, the hopelessness that I felt uh, from this world, uh, it, from this world, it eventually found some equilibrium um, with the eternal hope that I, that I truly believe that is in the person of Jesus. But it took some time. It wasn't instinctive. And I share that with you because Isaiah's original audience is also kind of in the same state of like, ugh, anxiousness. Like it's the same state of like, uh, I, I need to know what's going on, but at the same time, I kind of don't want to know really what's going on. And so they're, they're looking for a similar kind of equilibrium of their souls. They were a people group looking for hope in hopeless times. And there's so much literature about this internal search, which brings us to the servant of song, or the servant songs we have been looking at in the last couple weeks from Isaiah. Now, if you recall, the servant songs are a collection of prophetic poems that foreshadow Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And they were written to give their original audience hope and guidance uh, in the midst of their suffering. And these specific sets of prophetic poems are found in the second part of Isaiah. And I say second part of Isaiah because the way Isaiah is written is almost like a trilogy. 
and we love a good trilogy. Um, it's a trilogy, and so the first, and for each different part of Isaiah, there's a different tone, different thing that's happening historically, and how that breaks down for you Bible nerds is from chapters 1 through 39, that's the first part of Isaiah, 40 through 45, which is where we're at, that's the second part of Isaiah, and 56 to the end, 66, that's the third part. In each section, there's something unique happening. So in the second Isaiah, it was written for Israel between uh, 550 BCE and 515 BCE, so about, about a period of three, uh, uh, 35 years. And as Nan broke it down last week, how Isaiah started was it, it was violently overtaken and attacked and conquered by the Syrian Empire. And then well, we, the transition that happens in the second Isaiah is then the Babylonian Empire take over, back-to-back oppression. So they're in a state of being, constantly being attacked, constantly being captivated and exiled. And so while they're under Babylonian rule, um, there's some things that were like a little bit better than the Syrians. For example, like there was open trade and open um, cultural exchange. So there was an interesting tension that the Israelites felt while they were in exile because it was like it was a still a time of like economic growth and pros- prosperity, but it was definitely on the Babylonian terms, and it was definitely to their benefit. And so it was definitely not like um, definitely not like a time of like security for the Israelites. It was it was. It, a very unsta- it felt very unstable, very fragile. But to add to that, they, were, they have been literally disconnected from the native land, from their religious identity. And oftentimes the Israelites had to compromise and assimilate in order to survive in this foreign land. And that took a heavy toll on their sense of identity and purpose as God's chosen people. So there's a real sense of collective and communal grief and lament during this time period. So it's in this time period that we get books like Lamentations, which is a collection of laments, like, right? Like it's a, it's a collection of poetic laments where they're grieving. So one example is in the NRSV version, it says this in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, says, it gives you an idea of like what the Israelites are feeling. Is Judah has gone into exile with suffering and heart servitude. She now lives among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So this is the kind of despair that they are collectively feeling. And a servant of songs have this, are written in the same time period, are also full of lament, and also identifies a kind of their hopeless reality, but also give glimpses of the eternal hope, which we'll see. So we are going to focus on chapter 50, verses 4 through 9, and this is the third of the servant songs, which says this. Actually, can we, like, I'm like, I'm like super conscious about like, just, you know, just my voice. So can we all read this together, if, if that's okay? Um, can we read this out loud? Um, so one, oh, sorry, I, I, know I just threw that out there for you, so I'll, I'll give you time to mentally prepare. We're going to read this together, all right, if, that, if that's cool. All right, here we go, let's read it. The Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like the one being instructed. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. 
Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me, who will condemn me, and will wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. All right, fun stuff. So what we're seeing in this text is there are themes that are being built up from the previous two songs. And so here's kind of a brief overview of that. So in verse 4, we get that the servant is empowered by God. Again, we see that the servant is chosen by God. He's given a voice and a mouth. Um, and, and, and in verse 4, we see that he's given a tongue. And we also see this reference in 42.1, 49.2, and different places um, throughout the songs, uh, the servant songs. And in verse 5, we see that the servant is obedient to God. That was the main crux of last week's message. But also this verse picks up on the theme that is all over Isaiah, which is that Israel has lost its way. The previous three verses in the beginning of the chapter, um, it's, it's all about that. It's all about how Israel, Isaiah describes disobedience to God, that they lost their sense of identity and purpose. And that stands in direct contrast with the servant who is perfectly obedient, meaning that the servant never lost sight of his identity and purpose. So obedience is, really, is equivalent to knowing one's identity and purpose, and that's how Isaiah defines it. Verse 6, also it gets uh, built from the previous, uh, previous songs, and it is that the, son, the, the servant suffered for his obedience. He stayed, he stayed true, he stayed to the course of his identity and purpose, but still was rejected and suffered, and this is where we get some of that beautiful language of the beard being pulled and, you know, being mocked and spat on. Um, and this is some of that foreshadowing of Jesus' suffering that we talked about earlier. But this specific verse is get, gets referenced in Matthew chapter 26, 60, uh, verse 67. And then we get the next chunk of verses, which is verses 7 through 9. And this is different cadence in 7 through 9. It's almost like verses 4 through 6 was kind of like the setup and 7 through 9 is like, let me show you what's really happening here. And so it kind of lays it out, which is that the servant is resilient. I also like the word defiant. Uh, I think that could work um, in this context. But we see a type of resiliency from the servant, meaning that he's just not taking it. But instead, he is present to the suffering and is facing it head on. The servant is processing his suffering and putting that against the sovereign Lord. He's holding space for both at the same time. Suffering, which is defined here as shame, as lies and condemnation, and the Sovereign Lord, the character of the Sovereign Lord, both not separate. And, and this reminds me of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, there's, you know, there's the whole, like, turn the other cheek, right? And I, I feel like there's some, like, bad theology around that idea of turning the other cheek. There's the idea that, like, okay, you know, if someone slaps you, go get another hit. But I don't think it means really that. I think it means be present to the pain. Be present to it. And hold that and see, see what, what it's saying to you. I remember um, there was a season when I was going through just really kind of like, there's this trauma in my life that was kind of unfolding in my life. 
and something that someone helped, someone um, suggested to me at the time was, whenever I feel like anxiety and my te uh, me tensing up, and the thoughts of my trauma kind of creep back up, just let it go through the mind. Just let it go in through my head and just kind of wreak its havoc and just let it leave and be present to it. Observe it. See what it's doing in me. And then, I'll, and then I'll bring that to the Holy Spirit and process it. I think this is the invitation that it's making. Don't just get hurt. Don't just allow yourself to be abused. But be present to it and bring it to the Father. Bring it to the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we see the servant's resiliency. This is how the servant is resilient to shame. This is how the servant is resilient to false accusations and lies and condemnation. The servant is so resilient that he later describes his suffering as things that will eventually wear out and come to nothing, something that mothels will end up eating up. So for the servant, the sense, um, for the servant, the sense of defiance toward like the fleeting uh, suffering is anchored in the sovereign Lord, who is described as someone who helps, who vindicates, and who is near. I think one of the things that we've we've been experiencing as we unpack these servant songs, and it's been happening both in the text, but also I feel like it's even more present in some of our worship in the last couple of weeks. Is I feel like we. Um, Meg, just to put you on the spot. I remember after one, one rehearsal, we're talking about what are these songs doing to us right now? And what it did at the time was we felt like there's so many things in and around us that was just like so uncertain. Everything felt so like up in the air, so, so frivolous. And yet there's something grounding that, that was happening. And I think this text is hinting at a similar a dynamic. And so this is where Isaiah's original audience would start to pick up on the themes of finding eternal hope in a hopeless spaces. And this is where they would read and, and hear this and perhaps think, even in my exile, in this pre present state of like shame and suffering and being conquered, I can still trust in God who is sovereign, who will vindicate me, who is near. I can acknowledge my hopeless state and still have hope for the future. And so I think that's probably what the original audience took away from this text. Now, whether or not they applied, that's a different question, which is a different question. It was the same question for us, too. But Isaiah's invitation to his readers to be, uh, to be obedient to God as, servant, as a servant as to the sovereign Lord, um, as that invitation is there for his original readers, but for us today, I think we have to definitely take that into context but also understand that there's a kind of additional layer for us to process this text with. We have to kind of look at the, the text, the entire servant song as a whole, and consider and look deeper into uh, to, to the implications of Jesus' obedience and suffering, and ultimately what that means when we talk about the gospel of Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus' life in the gospel narrative, Like for Jesus, obedient isn't, isn't like this, like, it's not robotic compliance, you know? It's a way to demonstrate that the, the love that Jesus has between him and the Father is steadfast, is consistent, is sturdy, it's slow-paced, 
so much of how we've leveraged the idea of obedience has been about control, right? About behavior. But what we see in Jesus is when he, when he engages in obedience, it's not about controlling or it's not about behavior, but it's about relationship. It's about a deep relationship with his heavenly Father. And we see this, that's the dynamic that we see played out in verses 7 through 9. Jesus' obedience isn't just to the cross, but his obedience is also in crossing over rivers and bridges to be present with people in their joy and suffering and everything in between. Jesus' obedience isn't just about one big event, but a long and steady way of accompanying with God and the people he so loves. If, if that's the case, if that's the case, the gospel isn't just that Jesus suffered and died for our sins, but the gospel is Jesus' invitation to a new way of living despite our own sins and the sins committed against us. It's an invitation to a life that embodies the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. So much of our gospel has been death-centered, when the gospel really is an invitation to life, and life abundantly. When we preach a death-centered gospel, we are preaching a life that, it's, that, that you're asking people to come steal, kill, and destroy your souls, but Jesus' invitation is to an abundant life. We must preach the gospel in its entirety. That is not just about the cross, but it's about the life that Jesus lived as a whole. One of my music, uh, favorite musicians, um, he, he was a believer. He was a Christian uh, worship leader. No longer the case. And he, he, it's been that way for several years now. And then this week, he decided to um, go to a really mega, mega church that's like really does a lot of like big music and stuff. And, um, and he was there, and he, he, he just wanted to have a genuine encounter um, with the divine. And so he, he talks about his experience. And he said one of the things that kind of like, now that he's removed from this, um, this camp of Christianity, he's seeing things slightly differently. And one, thing, one of the observations that he makes is how much Christians tend to focus so much on death and blood. And he was saying, like, he realized how odd this is. I mean, yes, there's a significance to Jesus, Jesus dying, but there's so much focus on death and blood. And it kind of like took him away from the moment of, like, there's something beautiful happening here. There's something amazing happening here. And then he, he, start, he, said, he starts to think about this analogy. Like, he said he feels like a lot of Christians are like this family, this family where the dad died. The dad died, and people in the family got this life insurance. And they got this life insurance, and so the family's like, okay, let's all gather up, and you know, let's, let's talk about how great our dad is. But then... Instead of talking about how great the dad is, they start talking about, like, isn't it great that we got all this money from life insurance? Isn't it great that he died? Now we get life insurance. Now we get, you know, now I get to, get, I get to buy a boat. You know, like, how weird is that? And we make it so much about what we receive and not what we have for the dad. And he's, he's saying there's something fundamentally wrong about how we view the divine when we think about all it is about what we get from him and not who we get to be with him. So in the same way, when we apply that perspective to the servant songs, 
Well, I don't know if this text is just talking about, hey, let's just focus on Jesus' suffering. I don't don't know if this text is just only talking about, look how obedient Jesus was. But instead, I wonder if it's a way to say, look how great God is. Like, what if the servant songs and the prophecies of Jesus aren't aren't just like a prophetic projection of Jesus' obedience and suffering that endured, but ultimately a divine invitation for us to be present with him, just as Jesus was. The third service song of Isaiah, then, is a poem that is not only foreshadows the obedience and sufferings of Jesus, but also is a portrait of how God is present in our suffering. Then we begin to read the text of like how he gives words to comfort the weary. And we, we begin to see how he is present in the first moments, moments of our mourning. He, is, he opens our eyes. Whenever we feel disgraced or shame, he helps us. Whoever speaks falsely of us, wants to con- whoever wants to condemn us, God vindicates us and is close to us. So that whoever is suffering, whoever experiencing any sort of suffering, and even in those hopeless moments, that they'll, like those moments will just wear out. That they'll be like garments for moths to eat up. I think that's the invitation that God is making here and always has been making. That he is present with us. Um, we We live in a world, I feel like it's so, um, so conducive to anxiety. <laughs> um, um, and if you're not sure, watch the uh, documentary Social Dilemma. And any, actually, any documentary on any social commentary that's happening right now in the world, <laughs> um, we, are, we are going to come across things that are um, going to make us tense up. We're going we're gonna, to... We're going to lose track of our breathing for a little bit. We're going to feel anxiety. It's going to happen. But, but being with Jesus and to embody his presence and hope, um, even in those moments, I, I wonder if this is the witness that we are called to bear in this time and in this season. That we, we, we show people there's a different way to carry this anxiety, to carry this burden. There's a unique prophetic present way to be present in this space. Um, speaking of songs, um, one of my favorite worship songs is a song called King of My Heart. Um, and the, the bridge um, uh, says, uh, other two, or, again, there's so many... I feel like worship songs a lot nowadays have like so many parts of like tags, outros. I don't, I don't know what's what anymore. Okay, so there's this part of the song where it says like, um, "When the night is holding on to me, God is holding on." And I feel like without that line, it is very thin theology. The song, because you're just saying every, then without that line, it's just straight up spiritual bypassing. You know, like. Oh, you know, I'm going through all the suffering, but God is good, 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 whoa, good, 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 whoa. But with the line that says, when the night is holding on to me, 
God is holding on. That is what makes God good. I just found out why she wrote that song. She wrote that song because um, after she got married and after she had kids, after 40 years of her parents' marriage, they decided to get a divorce. And she talked about how disorienting it was for her. Her parents were believers. She, she, she talked about stories of like how they grew up and they listened to Keith Green records uh, and the whole family danced. And so it, was, so it, was like, it was like a spiritually holy family. And then for, like, as a grown adult, to be married, to have a kid, for her parents to like, who are, who are models of the faith for her, getting a divorce is like, like, it's like her faith bottomed out. And she's like, where the heck are you, God? Kind of space. And it was in that space, she was like, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. When the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. You are good. You are good. I pray that we will be a people that embody this faith for a time as such as this. May this be our prophetic presence. May this be our prophetic presence.